It is Thursday, February 22nd, and the MAD Podcast is back. Join us for conversations with leaders across the machine learning, AI, and data landscape with Matt Turk, partner at FirstMark Capital. Today, we welcome Tristan Handy, founder and CEO of DBT Labs. DBT, which helps more than 30,000 enterprises ship trusted data products faster, has raised more than $400 million and was most recently valued at more than $4 billion. Tristan and Matt talk about a critical and controversial question in the world of data. Is the modern data stack still relevant? Let's jump in. And as always, if you love the show, hit the follow button to get the latest episodes every week. Yeah, so uh, this is going to be uh, pretty much unscripted. You and I were exchanging emails about uh, catching up and sort of geeking out about the modern data stack. And uh, then I think like you had the wonderful idea of saying, hey, maybe maybe we should record this, which uh, was a brilliant idea. Well, so I, I communicated it poorly. I thought I was inviting you onto my podcast, and it turns out that, uh, anyway, here we are. I'm, I'm excited to be talking. Yeah, it's, it's such a 2024 conversation, right, where, where <laughs> it's sort of unclear whether that's your podcast or my podcast. Uh, it's just like too many too many podcasts, or maybe maybe the, num the right number of podcasts. Um, so um, we were going to talk about uh, the modern data stack um, for this uh, conversation you and I were going to have. Uh, and then uh, as part of your thinking, you published this um, really interesting, very thoughtful write-up, as always, um, called uh, Is the Modern Data Stack Still a Useful Idea? Uh, that people can um, can Google and then uh, we'll, we'll put it in the show notes as well. Um, so you know, I'd love for this to be the the, the core of the conversation. And, and by the way, I think that's really super interesting. That um, you know, of all people, you would be asking the question. <laughs> uh, so you know, look for for what it's worth, is something I've been thinking about as well for for a little while. And uh, as people that listen to this may know, I do this annual uh, landscape of the data and AI industry. And as part of that, I have a write-up. And part of the theme in 2023 was the modern data stack under pressure. But you know, in some ways, of course, I'm an investor. But like in some ways, I'm, a, I'm an impartial observer. But like you, um, of all people, you, you, so you, you've, you've been um, you know, one of the key architects of the concept. And it's um, you know, very much a, uh, a, a promoter and central piece of it. So um, I love the idea that you would ask the question in the first place. So maybe let's start with the concept of the modern data stack itself. Uh, yeah. is, is, that a, is that a functional thing uh, of our products working together? Is that a, a marketing concept? Is that a, an industry alliance? Uh, how, how do you think about it? I won't say that I coined the term modern data stack. I will say that I think I was a part of the community that started using that term. And I did some of the writing and thinking that led to that its popularity. And um, it, it became a thing that people frequently said in the like 2016 through 2019 period. The, the way that I experienced it was that um, I had a, a decade plus data career prior to 2012. And that data career felt very different to my data career post 2012 and the the big dividing line there for me was redshift and not specifically redshift because there have been now been other databases that have come out that are that are like redshift but it's the it is the year that the cloud first came for analytics and the cloud really changes a lot about how you build an analytics product it changes a lot about how you as a practitioner want to go about the work that you do. There's just a lot of assumptions that when you 
kind of start off, uh, you know, baking the cloud in, you have to kind of reevaluate them. And so in, in 2016, I, I was a consultant. I helped people implement quote unquote, the modern data stack. And at that point in time, it really meant something like, um, I, I had a strong preference to use tools like Mode or Looker over a tool like Tableau because Tableau was pre-cloud and it assumed that you were going to be able to, now it, it did have some capability to like write SQL, but it mostly assumed that you were going to be able to download all the data that you needed to operate on into your local cache. And then it did most of its, its calculations in memory. and in in the cloud world, people started doing analytics on top of clickstream data, behavioral data. And that just like didn't make any sense in Tableau's model of the world. And so tools like Looker and, and Mode and others that kind of pushed all the compute, I mean, it was cheaper to build a product like that because these tools didn't have to build the caching layer, but, but it also meant like you could do a lot more because you were relying on the database to, to do more. Anyway, that's where things kind of started out. And, and since 2019, I think things have evolved from there. But I do want to kind of defend the idea that when people started using the term modern data stack, there was a there there, like Fivetran, DBT, Mode, Looker, et cetera. These are tools that were built around an idea of how data technology should work. And it was a it was and is a good idea. And then what happened in 2020 and 2021, which, um, you know, I think in your piece, you talk about the memification of uh, the modern data stack. It sort yeah. of yeah. feels like those were the euros when it happened. So what happened then? VCs. <laughs> yeah, VCs, it's your, it's your fault. Um, well, it, it just, I think it became clear to enough people, both investors and practitioners and and even enterprise buyers that there was something going on here. And I think that um, the Snowflake IPO was a big part of this. I mean, the biggest enterprise software IPO of all time. Um, and all of a sudden that unlocks, I mean, it creates a huge marketing event for this technology ecosystem broadly, um, but, it, but it means that all of a sudden enterprise buyers take this wave seriously in a way that they hadn't before. And as a result of that, there was increased demand from buyers and there was increased interest from investors. And all of a sudden now, I mean, I don't, I, I don't know your portfolio uh, particularly intimately, but, but my guess is that you probably felt some need also to get exposure to the the overall like data stack trend um and and when you have that belief from the vc side then it creates uh it was very common for many early stage vcs to actually go out into big tech companies and find people who like worked on X or Y or Z yeah, modern data stack type problems. Especially open source, right? Tech. Especially open source. Yes, and then they would just like pull them out and say like, we'll give you 5 million bucks, go go make this. And there was just, there were too many companies created too quickly. Um, and, and I think that created some 
um, I don't know, like un- unpleasantness in the mouth of the practitioners that had been using this term for a little while. They felt like, ah, this is this is my term. Um, and now they sell all these other people and it became a marketing buzzword. So it was too much of a good thing, uh, basically. I mean, I look uh, certainly from my perspective as a... As a VC, uh, you know, who um, had been passionate about that space for a number of years before that whole thing happened, it, it, it did feel uh, very excessive. Uh, it was kind of weird in some ways that data infrastructure, uh, you know, which I, I love and obviously you love as well, but ultimately it's a pretty geeky thing uh, that like suddenly became like a household, um, you know, name and a category that like everybody would, would rush in. Uh, but it did feel like in the wake of the Snowflake IPO, you had a bunch of categories that um, were crowded overnight, or suddenly you had uh, you went from one company to like eight companies, or, or something. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I don't uh, like to get too too deep into the specifics because uh, people can feel like you're you're uh, bad mouthing them in public. But but I will say that I talked to a data catalog vendor a little while ago, and they said, we're the number six data catalog. And I was just like, that's not a great place to be in. Uh, that's, that's too many data catalogs. Anyway, um, th- there's there's two reasons that I uh, have have been thinking a lot about this. One one is that, so okay, it, my, my post, I said, I don't think the modern data stack is a useful idea anymore. And the, the main thing there is that it's not technically descriptive of anything anymore because what I was just saying about Tableau isn't true anymore. It, it was true in 2016, but you just, if you haven't adapted to cloud in the data space today, you just probably don't exist anymore. Now, maybe there's some like legacy big enterprise software type stuff that uh, is st- still operating in the in the bowels of many companies that will kind of be it'll have a half-life but it'll never really die um but but there's just no world in which tableau doesn't have a good snowflake integration and it's still a viable you know tool and in fact they they have gone through this journey just like everybody else has gone through this journey and so now the term that was used to describe this difference of pre-cloud and post-cloud it's not that useful anymore because everybody's post-cloud i mean we're eight years on here um but the, the other thing that I think is very interesting is that there's this idea around the modern data stack. It is a stack. It is many different tools that are all best to breed in the things that they do. And they all, you, you buy them together and they work together and they use SQL as a standard operating interface. And um, that's how you should be doing analytics work is that you should be buying seven, eight, nine, 10 different products and and integrating them all together. And that stopped being true also because in the macro environment that we're operating in, buyers have less patience for that. They, you know, they just don't want to operate in that way. They, that's not to say that there isn't still a stack. Like I don't believe that we're going back to Oracle and Microsoft in 2000 and everybody's just going to buy all their stuff from one vendor. Um, If you say, I want a modern data platform, as a, as a CDO, like the right answer is not go out and buy nine different products and integrate them together. Um, and that, that really changes the way that 
founders in this space have been operating because we had all kind of developed this way of like we had we all had our swim lanes we had partnerships we we like went to market kind of together as a team and that's still true to a certain extent but it's less true than it was two years ago was a very interesting things in in, in in what you just said but like what, what one 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 key question is that um Leaving aside what buyers uh, are able to afford, not only afford, but in terms of budget and, and time, you know, they would allocate to stitching tools together. Um, from a functional standpoint, is is the idea of the modern data stack as fresh as ever, or are there emerging ways of doing things completely differently? Do you? Because it seems to me, you know, ultimately, if you're going to do analytics, you still need to get data from somewhere and you need to transform it somewhere, you need to analyze it somewhere and something needs to come out which seems to support this idea of like an assembly line. But is there like a different way of doing things? No, yeah, so this is, you mentioned that it's funny that I wrote this and not somebody else. And I, uh, maybe, maybe our incentives as a company are for the modern data stack to be the buzziest of buzzwords forever. I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, in, in writing this post, I tried to thread the needle of saying the way we talk about this, the, the terms that we use maybe need to change, but that's not to say that the workflow, the, the methodology, the tooling is in any way outdated. So, I, there is, I'm sure that many different things have gone through this wave, but but it makes me think of Agile in like 2008. I mean, freaking everybody was talking about Agile. Everyone was so excited about it. You went to get your Scrum Master certification, all this stuff. Like all that stuff is still very relevant. Like people still run teams on Agile. It's it's it's, but it doesn't like blow up the internet anymore. It's just an accepted way that we do work in software engineering. And, and I feel the same way about, um, you know, like one of the, one of the kind of trends inside of this is the transition from ETL extract, transform load to ELT extract, load and transform. And that seems to anyone who's not in data that might not seem like a big thing, but in fact, it's, it's like a really significant transition in the way that data work is done. And I think that that will just be true forever like and and uh that's that's not going anywhere and so that means that companies like us and companies like fivetran that are big parts of that you know we're we're not going anywhere uh so so this to me you know i i think that my my big conclusion is i sent an email to our product marketing head of product marketing i was like hey can we just say the analytics stack like this is a set of technologies that works together to do analytics. Um, and it, it kind of tries to get away from the, the buzzwordy nature of the modern data stack term. But then, so if you believe that the functional need remains and is um, you know, as strong as ever, 
Uh, and then uh, we're saying that what we're hearing from the market is that people just don't want or cannot afford having like a bunch of different tools uh, that they stitch together. Then, then what happens? So you mentioned, you know, we're not going to all go back to Microsoft, but um, <laughs> you know, if you look at players uh, like the, the key uh, sort of central repositories, like the you know Snowflake and the Databricks, like that, there seems to be a clear path to um, expansion to like different functional parts. So if you look at uh, Databricks, I think last year or like whenever that was, they announced uh, you know a bunch of like different things, data catalogs and data governance and all of this. Which you know, look, you could argue whether that's part of the you know very um, precise definition of the modern data stack or not. But this is clear path to expansion from a functional standpoint. So. Are we going toward a world where people will get most of their tooling from a small number of vendors, or what would you think is going to happen? So, yeah, this is the question. This is like, like my job and George's job at Fivetran and Ali's job and Frank's. All this is like the thing that people are trying to to figure out and kind of elbow each other around right now. Um, I mean, really, you know, kind of. AWS and and uh, and Azure and, and Google kind of sit at the top of this food chain, and then people like me and George just get to figure out what everybody else above us is doing. Um, but uh, here's here's some things that I I would guess. Um, my guess is that if you sell compute and storage, most of your money is going to come from selling compute and storage. Because it's just, it's a great business model. Um, it's its all five of those companies. It's its their primary business model. And it's been funny to navigate the, the partnership there because they have actually, my, my read, I, it's not like I i know the minds of the, the folks at Snowflake or Databricks so, so clearly, but like my read is that People like us, people like Fivetran, while we are critical to their success as platforms because we drive a ton of consumption, they don't actually really care about the dollars that we make as businesses because they're so tiny relative to the like actual business of of compute and storage. Um, the way that you like when you talk to the folks at the hyperscalers, they will say, "We are." We're, we're like making sure that our solution it like covers all these different areas, but it's mostly not because we want to compete in these areas. It's mostly because people come to us with RFPs and we need to be able to check all these boxes. But like if the customer has a preference to use, you know, X or Y independent product, I mean, they've been navigating this stuff with, you know, Elastic or Confluent or whatever for a long time now. But if if they if their customer comes to them with a preference for a best of breed product, they're like, hell yeah! Because guess what? They're all still running on top of that same cloud infrastructure, driving that same you know compute and storage. So so what do you think um, happens um, to all the companies in the space? So like you know we we're just saying a massive wave of VC investment and like everybody overnight becoming a huge fan of data infrastructure and you know crowding little categories. 
Um, so are we heading to a wave of consolidation of some sort? Uh, and if so, without you know uh, pointing fingers or naming names necessarily, although if you want to do that, uh, you are <laughs> welcome. Uh, but are there specific categories? You mentioned data catalogs. Um, you know, one category um, that's that's interesting to me from uh, what it means at an industry level is reverse ETL, which is sort of thing that came up uh, and then seems to like overnight, uh, you know, got super crowded and super funded. And then fast forward to today, a lot of those companies are sort of becoming customer data platforms, not a reverse CTL. So there's like this whole evolution. So um, yeah, what, what, you know, one, what happens uh, going forward and, and two, which categories are more at risk? Yeah. Are, are you involved in any of the reverse CTL companies? I'm not. I'm a, an investor in a company called ActionIQ, which is a customer data platform. Uh, but uh, regardless of whether I'm involved or not, uh, sure, please, sure. please feel free. No, it's 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 very interesting that you mentioned that because that was going to be one of the things that I said. I think I think one of the potential evolution pathways is for uh, people that were originally co companies that were originally selling to data buyers to instead sell to a different buyer. And so you've got, and reverse ETL is like, a, a, I think a very good example of this. It turns out that the value of a reverse ETL tool does not accrue to the central data team. It accrues primarily to sales and marketing teams who get the data. So I, I think there's a lot of those companies that are much more focused on, on them, which on selling to sales and marketing buyers. And that means that just from this ecosystem standpoint that we were talking about before, we and they are no longer talking to the same buyers. We don't have the same kind of marketing events. We we just uh, like start, start to diverge, um, which is fine. Like ultimately our incentives are for there to be more value created in the data warehouse ecosystem. Um, and, and, but, but there's less like, direct partnership activities to do there. Um, there's other paths. I mean, there's the like direct acquisition path. I mean, we, we acquired a company about a year ago called Transform, broadened our, our solution. That was um, a metric store company, right? Yes, yep. Their, their technology now powers the DBT semantic layer, which we launched in October. Um, my guess is that there will be some more of that. The funny thing is though that um, I think a lot of modern data stack companies had to build, you know, there's like the iceberg, which is 10% above the water and you can see it. And then there's 90% below the water for a, for a data company. The platform is the below the water part. And then the functionality that you build on that platform is the 10% of the top. And a lot of times different companies in the space have already built their platform. And that ends up making acquisitions harder because you're like, well, I could acquire this other company and get the 10% of their stuff above the, because anytime you acquire a company, you've got to combine platforms, which is a shit ton of work. Um, so you could buy, buy the 10% of the stuff that sits at top, or you could probably just build that yourself and it might be faster and cheaper to do that. Anyway, so I don't know how much acquisition will happen, but I'm, positive that there's going to be a lot of uh, side to side kind of people trying to figure out um, 
if, if they can widen their swim lanes. And the, the uh, elephant in the room that we haven't spoken about uh, yet is, um, is AI. Um, so mm -hmm. you know, we were talking about um, how uh, things got crazy around uh, data infrastructure and the modern data stack in 2021, 2020 and 2021. From a VC perspective, customer attention perspective, press perspective, uh, and that seems to uh, you know e echo in some almost eerie ways what's happening in, in AI right now. Um, so what, what do you make of it? Is that is 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 AI a friend or foe for this whole set of companies? Well, if what you were trying to do is maximize the multiple that your software company was trading at, then AI is the enemy because all the multiple expansion has moved from modern data stack to AI. But but honestly, I, from my perspective, that's a that's a good thing. Um, you you can't uh, you can't build long lasting progress on top of buzzy press ecosystems and and high multiples. Um, so so I think that the analytics ecosystem is um, is in a place where after some kind of resetting over the past year or so. Um, there is kind of sustained progress getting made. Practitioners are like seeing continued forward movement, regardless of like what layer of the stack you're talking about. And then the question becomes, how can, just like cloud was a huge secular trend that, that this entire set of technologies was built on, AI is another huge secular trend. What do we do with it? And you know, you could kind of ask that for all the different data workflows, and that's like way more time than than we have here. But I'll I'll tell you that owning the data transformation experience from end to end, from like code authoring to testing to execution to discovery, like oh, owning that entire process gives us so many opportunities to inject AI in there. I mean, from the beginning with the, with development like it turns out that there are just some pretty straightforward unlocks on how to make authoring dbt code way more efficient um i mean we've already got internal prototypes working of generate me a model that does this or generate me tests for this model or uh you know write documentation for so we've got all of this stuff that is um going to be making its way through at some point um, and those are your own models, uh, or like, how do you go about building those? No, no using, like, it, it turns out that the hard problem here is actually, I mean, there's enough SQL written in the world. There's enough even DBT code written in the world where just your standard foundation model will will do this stuff pretty well, which will be interesting for us to figure out. Like, can we over time scale this stuff with lower cost, whatever? Like, the, right now. You know, you plug in GPT 3.5 and it's not as fast as you want and it costs more than you want. Um, but like something as, as stupidly simple as like uh, insert formula and you describe an English text to what you want the formula to do and uh, having it write the regex without you having to go to Stack Overflow and say like, remind me how to do email splitting uh, regex. Uh, it's just such a big performance accelerator. Um, and so I think that I think analytics engineering is going to 
change meaningfully over the next two years. And beyond that, I have no idea what anything is going to look like. So I don't try to predict beyond that. Yeah. And analytics engineering is like a, a, a big part of your overall positioning as a company. In, in fact, your, your, your blog and podcast is called the Analytics Engineering Podcast. So uh, sort of like spearheading and creating that, that profession is, is like a, a thing that you guys have done wonderfully well. But like, so uh, just to double click on the point, you think um, analytics engineers become prompt engineers over time? <laughs> um. Well, the thing that we're one of the core beliefs about the, the, that we have about the the profession is that data and software are not that different. And when you're building a production data system, you're building a production software system, which means that uh, we should be taking lessons as a profession from things that software engineers often figured out decades ago. Now, in the case of AI, we're not so far behind because a lot of these capabilities have only existed for the past, whatever, a year or something. Um, but I don't think that anyone believes that software engineers are going to go away. I think that they are going to get dramatically more efficient. So um, if, if you there, there are so many things in when, when you try to express an idea as code that you don't have loaded up into your prefrontal cortex, right? Like, and, and that's for a long time, we've used get Google and Stack Overflow and constant recompilation until you get a success message uh, as, as kind of the workflow there. And uh, that, I think, is like really what the future looks more like. Like you express the thing that you're trying to accomplish, you go in there and you fiddle around with some of the bits that require proprietary knowledge that only lives in your brain. And then you ask the thing to uh, repeatedly recompile itself and fix errors until it gets to a compilable state. So that, that's one part of the discussion of the intersection of the modern data stack and, and, and AI, which is, uh, okay, can AI, uh, you know, help you build superpowers to do data engineering better. Another part of the conversation is, uh, is the modern data stack part of the emerging stack around generative AI? Are the things uh, overlapping? Are they complementary? How do you think about it? Yeah, okay. So uh, I don't think we have good words for this yet. But we're seeing it happen internally. And anecdotally, I'm hearing it happening at other companies too. Um, one of the first places that we have invested from an AI perspective is making our support team more efficient. Not, we don't have our customers interact directly with AI agents, but we have AI agents that are there to accelerate response times on the part of our, our support reps. And that has made a massive improvement in support. Uh, we primarily from an efficiency standpoint, it's not that previously we were giving terrible responses and now we give good responses. It's that we're now able to take a brand new support rep and ramp them up in half the time. Um, we are also able to 
uh, get response times down. And all of that relies on data that lives in our data lake, our data warehouse. Um, DBT has kind of no awareness today that that is happening. And so in some ways you could say, well, the quote unquote modern data stack has nothing to do with this. But in fact, infrastructure is exactly as valuable as the business value that is created on top of that infrastructure. So to a certain extent, the fact that there are people developing AI use cases all over the place that DBT generated data is powering is, is very, very good for us. Plus, uh, ultimately, AI, especially enterprise AI, you want to bring in your data, right? So there's like this whole emergence of uh, RAG as an, as, as an architecture, um, and there's a lot of stuff around vector databases, and uh, I guess Snowflake is trying to say they are a vector database too. But like that, that data that lives uh, or gets funneled into vector databases has to be clean, has to be current, uh, has to be transformed, has to come from so I. I think a lot of times the the answer to the question, how much can uh, DBT and Fivetran and, and other companies in this ecosystem, how much can we help you is often determined by how, how functional are the underlying platforms. Um, I mean, in 2016, Redshift was pretty buggy. I mean, very frequently you would get weird compiler errors that there was no help on the internet. It just, it kind of broke. Um, and that's not true anymore. And the, the ways that, uh, the, the ways that AI functionality show up inside these platforms in kind of a native way, not in a bolted on way, um, is going to unlock. I mean, I, I hope that both Databricks and Snowflake and all the, the hyperscaler offerings are going to do a great job integrating AI because then it means that it won't just be AI and ML engineers that have the ability to build these kinds of systems. Like what we really want is we want these capabilities to be available to anybody who understands how to think about data. We, we mentioned the semantic layer uh, a few minutes ago. Um, what... Um... Uh, just to walk us through some of the stuff like you guys have released in the last year and uh, maybe if you will, like some of the upcoming stuff at DBT. The, the big theme for us over the past year was we were starting to see companies deploying DBT at a scale and complexity that previously had not happened. And so they were starting to run into some really unpleasant experiences. Uh, they had a hard time. Uh, here, here's a like really stupid one. Um, DBT didn't make it easy to refactor a very large code base into multiple different projects or modules, uh, and then integrate those using reliable APIs. Um, and it didn't allow you to view that large complex project in our kind of native visualization tool, which was called DBT docs because that was a single page web app and it the, too much uh, too, too much information in there actually crashed your Chrome tab. Um, so for the first time we were like, oh my gosh, we have, we have people that are really pushing the limits here. Let's um, let's see if we can, can solve some of that for them. And so part of that was 
making it more possible to refactor DBT projects, giving people a uh, kind of first-class tool that's uh, that to, to visualize DBT projects that scales as far as you want. Um, but then the semantic layer was a big part of that too. One of the kind of, I don't know, Don Quixote style windmills inside of data forever has been that, you know, you get to a meeting and somebody says revenue is this and somebody else says no revenue is this. And they're like, well, I'm using whatever. And so the conversation becomes about the numbers instead of the, the business. And this is fundamentally a, pro a problem of complexity. It's like too many disparate sources of truth. And the semantic layer, in the same way that like a cloud data platform centralizes data, so you can all use the same data, um, the semantic layer centralizes meaning. How do you actually analyze that data to produce a, a particular business metric? And um, so, so that we are uh, one of, there's, there's a very small set of people trying to solve this problem. It is, how do you separate the semantic layer and the concepts defined in the semantic layer from the BI tool? Because historically, many BI tools have this kind of technology baked in, but you can only really use it inside of that BI tool. We're talking about like Looker and LookML, right? Yeah, right. Um, MicroStrategy way back in the day. Um, but uh, we were talking about AI. Uh, one of the most interesting uses of the semantic layer is that it presents uh, a, a way to, a, a roadmap to the, to the AI to actually analyze the data in your database in a reliable, consistent way. So there's a lot of companies out there that are helping people do analytics on top of their data warehouse using AI because AI can write SQL. But it turns out that that's kind of a probabilistic way to approach a problem that really should be deterministic. Like every time you ask, what's my customer count? You need to get freaking exactly the same answer. And so the semantic layer injected into that AI pipeline can actually help you ask an English language question, compile it to the same SQL every single time. Okay, that's the semantic layer. Like, what's uh, what's coming up? What's what's next? Um, Grand reveal of the roadmap. Haha. <laughs> uh, there's there's a bunch. There's I I named some of the AI functionality that we're we're looking into. Um, the we're also um, we've always cared about getting more humans involved in the process of analytics engineering, and there there are certain humans that the way that they work with data is much more visually and not with code. And so this year will probably be the year where we start playing around in that space. Now, there are companies that have been doing that for 20 years, and we don't think that all at once we're going to just like make some, some better mousetrap. But uh, we think that bringing the, kind of, the analytics engineering workflow to GUI-based workflows is, is uh, I think, a big unlock to lots of new people doing this stuff. Um, so we we're, talking, wanted, we're talking no code, low code. Yeah, the, the, um, it, it historically has been almost a religious topic in the DBT community. But the, I think the thing is like, you have to get no code, low code experiences that read and write code so that code can go through a get PR process and it can have all the same mature 
stuff built on top of it as, as any other code. Um, there's, there's other stuff, but, but the, the, those are some of the big things. I, um, I am very excited about our kind of nascent data catalog experience because I, I really care. Again, this democratization trend, I, I want everybody in an organization to just know what's out there and then maybe using AI to be able to ask questions of it. And that shouldn't be a tremendously expensive thing. It should be kind of assumed that you have that kind of capability as a company if you've invested in creating in these these data sets in the first place. Yeah. And not, not to belabor the point about the modern data stack, but like I think like this this conversation, conversation part of the conversation we just had um, sort of sort of reinforces the point that the companies are going to survive and thrive in this environment are gradually going to expand in terms of functionality, right? Like if you look at DBT, you sort of go into the BI world a little bit with a semantic uh, layer, and then you're sort of adding a data catalog layer and, you know, bit by bit. And if you look at Fivetran, you know, like I guess that's not new news, but, um, you know, they added, uh, you know, real time uh, to their, you know, catalogs. There's a lot of conversations around, okay, well, are the... The, e, the EL players are going to also acquire the reverse, and there was reverse ETL yep, players, and yep. there was some of that. So anyway, um, maybe taking a, a, to, to, to close for the last few minutes of the conversation, maybe taking a, a step back um, and thinking through your entrepreneurial journey, your, your journey as a, as a founder and CEO. Um, one thing I, I, I read was uh, that... Uh, You've um, made some some really key hires uh, recently. Mm -hmm. A new CTO, a new president and COO, a new vice president of product. Um, how did you think of navigating this transition um, of uh, you know one team to the other, one senior layer to the other, and what have you learned over the years about um, hiring at different stages of the business? It's something I've been thinking about a lot. I. I think that one of the everything about being a founder is is about context. It's about um, you know there's sometimes that you want to be patient, and then there's sometimes that you want to move very fast. Um, and I think to the extent possible, you almost always want to be patient. And I think that was very very successful for us for a very long time. We waited, waited a long time to raise any venture funding at all. We had a thousand companies using the product before we raised a single cent. Um, and, and that gives you a ton of power and control. Uh, but we, with all of the market changes over the past, let's say 18 months, and with the like very fast changes in scale of the business, became very clear uh, kind of very quickly that we needed people around the table that had a different set of experiences. And so if you look today, um, the only people who are consistent presence on our executive team from a year ago are me and our CFO. And everybody else around the table is, is new. Um, and it's something I'm thinking a lot about right now. How do I, you know, there's a lot of strengths that come with that. These folks know way more than I do about operating in that scale business. I mean, every one of them has operated 
at larger scale than we're at now. Um, and so then where are their weak spots and how do I make sure to correct for those as much as I can? And I think a lot of that has to do with context. Like they don't know our space that well. I mean, our team from a year ago, they lived and breathed our space and we could as a team have incredibly deep conversations about this player or that player or the trends or whatever. But now that's not the case. And so I, I need to um, figure out how to download that content into everyone's brains as quickly as possible. Cause I didn't hire for that. That's not what I wanted. Um, but, but I also need to take seriously that that's now a thing that's on me. Like I've, I've got to make sure that I'm, I'm adding that context. So I don't think that there's ever like one right answer. Like, should you value this type of team or the other type of team? But we, we cared so much about operational maturity that I think this was the right call for us. One really interesting thing that uh, DBD has done very successfully is this transition from uh, an open source community driven kind of project to a sustainable commercial venture. Uh, any lessons learned there, especially on the cultural front? How do you go from one to the other without alienating your, you know, rapidly enthusiastic open source community? Oh, uh, this is this. You, you waited until the very end to ask a very hard question. Um, I don't know that there's a secret, but the best that I figured out is just be as transparent as you can be. Um, this count. This goes for like employees as well as external community members because generally when you're an open source company you hire a lot of people from your open source community and then they really care like they care a lot um so in this transition we've both had to have hard conversations internally like hey there's a set of things that we will need to charge for and maybe that will mean some people aren't able to use it but the the alternative is we will not be a successful business and we will go away um which is you know it's kind of silly when you say it out loud. like of course that's true um but but it's a hard transition for for teams to go through um and then the the in the external community it's you know we've we've done some things over the past year we've changed the way that we price and anytime you change the the kind of not contract but the the like the agreement between you and a user community it it created ruffles feathers and it ruffled feathers when we changed pricing and i i have tried to do my best to communicate honestly and openly about that and by and large it's our business as a result has not really had a hiccup um but if you only existed on twitter or linkedin uh you would think that uh, you know, our customers deserted us on mass and, uh, we're every single one of them was livid and, and canceled, but, but that just like didn't happen. In, in a harder market, uh, like we have today, do you sell any differently than you did a couple of years ago? Like we've gone through kind of command of the message type training and our sales reps, we do much more deal inspection, like, uh, but, but also it's, we've had to do a lot more focus on pipeline generation. Um, we have to like be really serious about making sure that we know what our pipeline coverage looks like for next quarter, because, you know, two years ago, we could walk into a quarter with 
1x pipeline coverage and you would just the deals would just show up and that's not how the world works today and that's okay that's not usually how the world works um, it just means that we have to be better Kristen, thank you so much fantastic convo really enjoyed it appreciate it thanks for having me i'll see you